Daisy. And I'm Terry. And this is the Monday Monday Mindset Mindset Podcast, where we share things of interest to us and hopefully to you. So let's get started with episode number 67. And this week, it's Terry's turn to be in the hot seat. I'm going to shake it up. (laughs) What have you got for us today, Terry? Daisy, today what I have for you is about stress, just as I mentioned at the tail end of last week's episode. And of course, stress is a topic that we could write volumes on, we could discuss for days on end and still not cover all of it. So I first just want to address the fact that this is a very brief piece of looking at stress. So for example, you just talked about last week, James Nestor and talking about breath work and the role it plays in stress and stress management. But today I want to talk about an author that both you and I really like, Kelly McGonigal. Mm. And she has a book called The Upside of Stress, Why Stress is Good for You and How to Get Good at It. She also has a TED Talk about stress. And I listened to a podcast where she was a guest and the podcast is Michelle McQuaid. The episode is titled, Can You Flex Your Stress Mindset? What I loved about the interview and the book is that it really looks at stress differently. I think so many of us are used to hearing about stress as dangerous, deadly, Mm. contributing to all of these chronic health problems, something that if we're experiencing, we're probably doing something wrong. And there's just all of this kind of negative messaging around stress. For some people, then it makes them quite nervous about stress. And unfortunately, this then influences many of us to take certain behaviors around stress. We do certain things to avoid stress. We do certain things to numb stress. We overeat, we overdrink, we oversmoke. You know, we do these things with the idea that we're managing stress. What Kelly McGonigal, the way I would phrase what she really is about is that stress isn't something we should avoid. It's actually something we should embrace because there are some positive aspects to it. And if we learn that, we can help ourselves experience stress in a more productive way and a less damaging way. So one of the things she says about stress, and I didn't write it down, so I don't have the exact wording she used, but basically to start thinking about stress is a biological function that allows our body to react to environmental or situational stimuli. So if you just think of that definition, there's nothing negative about that. That's absolutely necessary. It's for survival. But when most of us think about the stress response, we think about feeling horrible, you know, tense. We think about high levels of cortisol. We think about all of the negatives of it. Versus it's really this adaptive, helpful, physiological response to help us figure out what's going on in our environment and activate the resources we need Mm. to manage it. It's necessary for growth, isn't it? Absolutely. It's it's similar to all of these things. Mm -hmm. When it runs amok, it's a problem. It's like, you know, inflammation, absolutely necessary. Mm -hmm. Too much of it chronically is a problem. Mm -hmm. Stress, again, serves a very important function, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. 
And so one of her key messages, obviously you can tell by the title of her book, her talks, they're all about this, is one of the things we can do to help ourselves deal with stress differently, experience more the benefit of it rather than the downside of it, is to change how we think about it. Mm. To stop thinking of it as something that is wrong, bad, dangerous, um, a weakness, and rather think about it. This is actually helpful information for me. It's helping me navigate my life. And then she does break it down into some different types of stress responses. So the one that we all know, I think the best is the fight or flight response. Mm -hmm. And this, of course, is, you know, the amygdala gets activated because it's getting stimuli. The prefrontal cortex, which is the thinking part of navigating this, doesn't engage yet. But those two things have to interact with each other. And usually the amygdala is kind of in overdrive. And so we have all the physiological responses of stress rather than kind of thinking through it. And, you know, the prefrontal cortex can tell us, hey, that actually was just a car backfiring. It wasn't a gunshot. You're okay. But if the prefrontal cortex isn't activated, the amygdala just runs wild with all the worst case scenarios and, and goes into overdrive, which again, we need it to be able to do. Mm. Very important thing that we can do. But this is how most of us think when we hear someone talk about the stress response. But she talked about several other types of stress responses and how they're different and actually useful. So one type of stress response is the social stress response. And it's actually probably the one that we have the healthiest benefits from. And one thing that the social stress response does, it helps make us aware that stress is bigger than us which requires us to interact from a more interconnected place rather than a place of isolation. When we're in fight or flight, we're just within ourselves, you know, kind of scrapping, how am I going to get out of this? How will I survive? But a social stress response, again, it encourages us to trust navigating our environment, hopefully finding or knowing someone or somewhere we can trust in that environment. It pushes you to talk and ask for help rather than keep it all inside yourself to kind of team up. Again, the interconnectedness theme is really important. It also provides us a sense of courage it develops a mindset of interdependence, which is a healthy, necessary human thing. And it allows us to activate and develop hope. In the past, this used to be referred to, and other people refer to this as the tend and befriend tendency. So we tend to other people. One way we navigate stress is by helping others. And there's research that people, let's say after the bombing of 9-11, those people who volunteered and helped other people had fewer negative impacts mm. from the stress they experienced. Makes sense. So helping others is an important part of this. And one part of this whole stress response is it activates oxytocin. And oxytocin... It helps to dampen fear and activates our reward and caring giving systems. So again, caring for others, we get rewarded by that. It instills warmth 
and a better ability to read other people's facial expressions. It does all kinds of positive things. So if we didn't have that stress response, we would miss out on these benefits. So it's an example where stress can push us to do positive things, to grow in positive ways. Another stress response she described is the challenge response. And this could be thought of as you have a piano recital and you're nervous to perform, or you have a big presentation at work. Things that stretch us outside of our comfort zone, this response helps to bring out our best selves in order to accomplish a challenge, to overcome a challenge. If we are never challenged, we don't keep growing. We don't push ourselves. Naturally, we, we go more into a protective mode. And so she really talked about thinking of this stress response is when your heart starts to flutter before you go on stage, rather than think about, oh, this means I'm going to bomb this. I shouldn't have signed up for this. I don't know why I did this. Instead, to think, ah, this tells me this really matters. Because that level of investment helps us rise to the challenge and grow. The third type of stress response she talked about, it's the resilience stress response. And basically, after a stressor happens, when the immediate stressor happens, the biology of learning starts to accelerate. We need to kind of figure out how to adapt to the traumatic stressor or the stressor that just happened. And so it actually activates chemicals in our body. One example would be DHEA, which builds and grows brain pathways from the difficult experience. So when we talk about neuroplasticity, the stress response, this stress response is necessary for that. We don't have a reason to grow new neural pathways if we aren't pushed to do so. Mm. Symptoms like anxiety. <laughs> Is that a <laughs> combination, Birdie Charles? <laughs> That's when you stay up all night anxious. <laughs> symptoms like anxiety, insomnia, and cognitive symptoms, these all actually can lead to resilience. They're not just bad, uncomfortable things. Because the hours after a stressor happens, our body has to make sense of it. And so it takes that time to change our perception. One of the things we can do during this time, rather than just rehash the emotion of what happened, is to be asking ourselves questions. What did I learn today from that? What did I do that was helpful? What would I want to do if that ever happened again? So this is how we learn and, again, strengthen and build new neural pathways. So those are the, the three types of stressors that she talks about that are actually helpful um, ways to look at stress. But one of the other pieces that she covers in her book and um, in other in her talk and in the interview was the idea, again, that how we think of stress itself and how we think of stressors impacts the way we experience it. And from both her materials and some other books that I read on stress, the reasons why we deal least effectively with stress is when we feel like the situation that we have no control, when we feel like the stress is against our will, 
and or when the stressor feels utterly devoid of meaning. Mm. So if we want to change how we experience stress and how it affects us, these are three important areas we can look at. Spending some time to see what in this situation do I control? I can't control that my best friends are fighting, but I can control whether I stay in the room while they're fighting or if I go sit out in the lobby and wait until it's over. Or I can control the fact that I don't try to take ownership of it and believe that I should be able to fix it. So at first, any situation might seem like, well, I, I do have no control. What, what can I do about that? So it, it takes some thinking about what are you in control of in that situation. It might be as simple as how you're thinking about it, what you're attributing it to, what you plan to do about it. Those are the areas that you are more likely to have a sense of control. And the idea of meaningfulness is so important. One study talked about in the book was college freshmen at Stanford University. They were asked to keep a journal over their winter break. And it's like a three-week or four-week break. So they go home, they keep a journal. And one group was asked to write about positive things that happen during their winter break. The other group was asked to write about things that are happening in their break and what they mean to them and what they're learning from them. So both groups obviously come back after break. The first group who only wrote about positive things. Now you would expect, oh, they're writing about positive things. I bet they had the better outcome. Actually, they didn't. They came back more sick, more colds. You know, their physical resilience was down. They reported less enjoyment of their break and more dread of going back to school. The second group who wrote about things that they did, what they meant to them and what they were learning from them came back fewer incidents of cold and illness, more enthusiastic about coming back to school and a better report of the vacation. So the difference really was the second group focused on the meaning of what was happening. So they had a sense, let's say, for example, I'm a freshman, I go home and I have younger siblings and my parents make me a taxi service and I'm driving my siblings around during my break. If I am asked to journal about that, the meaning of this and what I'm learning from it, and if I come up with things like, I realized how important I am in this family, like everyone has a role and I did something that helped my parents and I got to know my siblings better by dropping them off at school and hearing how their day went when I picked them up. This helped their responses. This helped their overall outcomes. And so... Attaching meaning to things is really significant in relation to stress. Another study talked about was when asked about what are the daily stressors that people experience, they talked about things like navigating a busy schedule with my kids and doing this and doing that. But the people who identified those daily stressors with things that were important to them, the impact of the stressors didn't have as negative of an effect. So the fact that the kids are challenging and it's busy running them everywhere and you have to pick up after them and do all these things, 
was somewhat mitigated by the fact that they brought joy and they brought laughter and they brought pride. And so the more we focus on our daily tasks as annoyances, there was another study about this, but if we just said, you know, all oh, the daily things I have to do, it's just, we act like daily tasks are getting in the way of something else versus those are our daily tasks. And so even just how, what mindset we have on that affects whether we experience them as stressors that are negative and interfere in our lives. And then we have less productivity, we have worse health outcomes, or if we see those as those are just daily events. So it wasn't just how many events or daily stressors people reported, it was how they saw them. So how we think about stress and how we think about our stressors makes a huge difference in how we experience them. Kelly also gave a few examples of ways to kind of better navigate and utilize stress. Things like when you become aware that you are having stress signals, to work on assigning a different value to it. Again, so rather than I'm getting nervous, this means this was a bad idea, this isn't a good place for me to be, to say, wow, my heart is really in this. This is an important thing to me. So even just shifting kind of the attribution to it can really make a difference in how you experience it. She talked about an activity that she does is reflecting on positive influences of people in daily experiences. So not just, you know, the three people who are closest to you, but, you know, maybe one day when you reflect on this, it might be the clerk at that store who helped you bag your groceries and threw in some extra food because it was there on the counter or interacting with close friends or whomever. Because this, again, keeps us building and developing that mindset of interdependence. And we are healthier and better able to manage and navigate stress from a good mindset of interdependence rather than feeling isolated and like it's us against the world. And something that you know, because you talked about in a very early episode, her next book was about movement, the book after this one. Well, I was going to say, actually, yeah, there's a lot of similarities mm -hmm. in the general perspective of the way you look at things mm -hmm. and how that means you experience yep. them. And so one of her statements, even in, in this material, is that movement helps better regulate the chemicals and neurobiology, which will help us navigate stress in healthier ways. And Kelly McGonigal and others talk about this, but exercise earlier in the day is actually better. Um, we get more of that benefit from it and later at night actually kind of stirs things when our body needs to be in a slowing down mode. But just the idea that movement can be so important to help us in our navigation of stress. And like we were talking, I mentioned last week in talking about the breathing things, these strategies that I'm talking about right now, they're not necessarily strategies that help in the moment deal with stress. They are strategies that help us develop better stress management and utilization tools in the future. Because the more we're in a sense of that mindset of interconnectedness, 
the less stressful situations are going to have a negative impact. The more we are able to see physiological signals of stress as actual positive signals, the better we're going to do with those as well. So these are kind of those ongoing things to help, not just what do you do in that moment when you're stressed. And obviously the breath work is an important one of that. Movement can be, um, and so many other things. But to me, the beauty of this book is the idea that it's how we frame stress for ourselves that makes the difference in what impact it has. The more we see it as a natural actual helpful thing, the better. I think though, as I was listening to all of these books about stress, one of the thoughts I had is, and you and I have been talking some about sleep lately. There's so much societally, I think, that glorifies being highly stressed Mm -hmm. and not getting enough sleep, that that's a sign that you're really You're in the rat race. You're doing what you're supposed to be doing. That's how you're going to get ahead. That's what it takes. And it's like we're going for some Olympic medal of sleep deprivation. Like who can have the the worst sleep and the least sleep and who can stay up the longest and do the most reports with very little sleep and who can manage the most stress? That's killing us. And so the more we can see stress is a normal thing, but I don't want to... That doesn't mean I should increase the stress I experience, but I can look at how I face stressors so that I deal with them in a healthy way. I really like her perspective on things. I can remember this when I did that episode way back. It was like episode number three or something, wasn't it? Um, About listening to her talking about her book about movement. And I just really liked her take on it. She wasn't changing anything. She was just changing the way you think about things, really emphasizing the importance of it. In that episode, it was the importance of movement. And you've touched on it a bit in this one, but focusing on the importance of stress and that it Mm -hmm. recognizing that it plays a very important function in your life. I particularly like the mindset of how it helps with growth. You know, we can't grow as human beings without stressing ourselves, without putting stress on our bodies, without putting stress on our minds, without these challenges to mm-hmm. our environment, we won't grow, we won't develop. It's like I was talking about last week with the breathing exercise and talking about the challenging Wim Hof breathing cycles. Well, that's a stress you're putting mm-hmm. on your system but that it's going to improve your breathing overall. It's going to, and I like the way they were talking about in that episode about focusing in on purposefully stressing yourself, purposefully putting stress on your system, that you really become very aware of the difference between that stressed state and the calm state. And so by applying it in a purposeful way and seeing the potential of that, seeing the growth potential, the growth mindset behind it, I just, I really like that 
difference in energy when mm-hmm. you we were talking about attaching meaning and thinking about daily tasks things that you have to do all the time and when you were just saying then about it, it's not so much thinking about in the moment but the future knock-on effect well yes if you can see the meaning in daily tasks that you find a bit stressful for whatever reason perhaps they're boring you resent having to do them every day but if you can attach meaning to that it's going to make them easier to deal with Mm -hmm. isn't it I, I really like her perspective, the way she gets you to focus energy in the right place and just look at things in a different way that's going to end up being beneficial to you. I can remember her talking about getting you to be aware of the physical things that were going on, say, when you did some vigorous exercise. Well, you could think, oh, it makes me feel so tired and I get really hot and I get sweaty. Or you can think, wow, yeah, I sweated so much because I was getting really energetic and it was, you know, it was really uplifting and I was dancing to some uplifting music and I had a great old time. I had such a great time that I was sweating with the exertion. You know, isn't that great? It's the same experience, Mm -hmm. but the way you look at it affects that experience and the ongoing effect from it. I really like her. I have actually read one of her other books, something to do with willpower. I'm trying to remember the name of the book, but she obviously has a general perspective, the way she looks at things. And I like it. The willpower instinct. That's the one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I really like her. And it's funny when I was, you know, just pulling up she is a psychologist. Um, she's at Stanford. But one of the things they said in her description that I think is so fitting to what you just said is she basically is someone who helps translate what science tells us into how we can apply it in daily life. Mm. And that's why I think I like her stuff. It's not just the studies. I like listening to the studies, but it's more, she doesn't go into the details. I hate listening to statistics and things. But when you can see, oh, this is what that really means for us. Mm-hmm. This is this is how I can use this information. So I like people like her who are able to make the science applicable for people like me. So I really enjoyed this book a lot. And she's fun to listen to. I was trying to remember right before we got started, in the beginning of the podcast episode, I didn't know this about her, but she basically does some type of, I don't know if it's volunteer work or what, but she sets up like cat adoption things. Oh, really? And I thought you'd be interested in that. But she had a theory about people who like cats versus people who like dogs. And I couldn't remember the theory (laughs) of why she believes that some people are more cat people and some people are more dog people. But I think it was something to the effect of um, with cats, when you bond with them, it's like one-on-one. It's like you are theirs and they're loyal to you. Whereas dogs, like anyone who's giving them a treat, they're excited to see and they want to jump up on everyone. So there was something about the one-on-one or versus the other, but I just thought it was kind of funny and I forgot the details of it before we got started, but probably another reason why you like her, Daisy. <laughs> 
Yeah, I'm always interested in that kind of stuff. But yeah, I like her and I like how she gets you excited about the things she's talking about and makes you want to go out and try some of them. Yeah, I'm very interested to read this book. It sounds good. So my hope is that everyone can just kind of borrow some of her teachings here and just reframe how you think about, make sense of, and approach your stress. And please don't hang on to it thinking like you're going to win some Nobel Prize for navigating the most stress as a mom who works 70 hours a week, raising four kids while going through grad school, you know. But think about how can you use the upside of stress, the benefits of it to help yourself. Love it. Well, I hope you have a meaningful, stressful week ahead. (laughs) And find the areas in which you do have control in any situation. Absolutely. Have a great week, everybody. Have a great week.